Hello, podcast land. Welcome to another tour guide tell all. We are back at you in the new year. I am Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. (laughs) All right. First one of 2021. Doing it good. We are back at you in your ear holes with uh, the second half of a two-parter. Last week you heard about inaugurations and sort of their fun little trivia um, things and it was very exciting. And this week we want to drill down on one particular election and end with kind of a really fascinating inauguration that had sort of interesting implications. Uh, So we're going to talk about the election of 1840, y'all. Here it is. Woohoo! I love, I and it's my hope for this podcast that we really get to like dig into most of the past presidential elections because I really love talking about election history. I think that a lot of people, and some of it's recency bias or whatever, and some of it's the way that me- media news exists today as opposed to maybe 50 or 200 years ago, but everyone sort of thinks that our elections are so crazy today, and in the past they mm. were so simple. And like everything was smooth and easy peasy. And that's really not the case nine times out of 10. Politics is politics. People are people. Um, And so I love digging into elections from the past and hopefully illuminating the ways in which there's nothing new under the sun and certainly not in the world of politics. And this election, election of 1840, is so interesting to me because it is going to end up establishing a bunch of firsts and president setting for how we deal with this things in our American political system. So many things. I am excited about this because I feel like it ties together a bunch of disparate threads that we've kind of talked about on other pods. We've talked about Martin Van Buren. We've talked about a little bit about William Henry Harrison. We've mentioned John Tyler, but we're, I'm going to throw Andrew in Jackson. A, I mean, this really pulls Jackson. together people that we have touched I'm gonna on. I'm going to throw in a James Garfield reference later on. Like, it's going to be good times, you guys. This is fun. This is one of those elections that we're like, oh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> and we don't dig into it, but it's, it's really kind of fun. So yeah, so to get us started, 1840 is still relatively early into America's life. We talked last episode about Martin Van Buren uh, and his inaugural address. Van Buren is president after Andrew Jackson, and he sort of gives this inaugural address talking about being kind of the first president to be born after the revolution or being a baby during the time of the revolution, as opposed to being this guy who lived through it. So we're starting to get our first generation of American politicians in 1840 that are post-revolution. And we're really starting to find our legs as a country. So as we lead up to the election of 1840, Martin Van Buren is the sitting president. He had been basically handpicked by Andrew Jackson. If you listen to our Petticoat Affair episode, you have a little bit of understanding about how Martin Van Buren got to that post. But he's been sort of writing Andrew Jackson's popularity into office, which was all well and good, except that in 1837, there's a huge financial crisis. And it's bad. It's one of the biggest financial crises up to that point in our history. Jackson had been, you know, in his time, not super friendly with the Bank of the United States. He had some financial and economic policies that I will not try to explain because I'm not an economist, but that basically led to high inflation, 
really high unemployment for the first time in our nation's young history, and a really unstable business environment. So you have um, Martin Van Buren coming into office, writing a lot of popular support for Jackson, but right underneath all of that, there is a lot of economic distress with the inflation, with unemployment, and for the first time too, a lot of businesses feeling like this is an unstable time to invest. And so it's not good. The everyday American's hurting, the everyday businessman is hurting, people's pocketbooks are feeling it. And Martin Van Buren, for all of his savviness as a politician, and he was savvy, he did not always think about, I think, uh, image. <laughs> and so during this time that the country's having a tough time, he's out there um, living the high life. He's very well dressed. He really cares about his appearance. So it makes it seem a little bit, though, like he's living large while everybody's suffering. Yeah. He's not the only president that's going to do this, by the way. Herbert Hoover kind of does this, too, during the Great Depression. But Martin Van Buren, really part of the economic depression that happens, also like Hoover, was not Van Buren's fault, necessarily. A lot of the blame could probably be laid at Jackson's feet, but no one did because Jackson's gone and he's a hero. And now we have Van Buren and he's going to, like, take the fall for a lot of this. And then he lives really large and has big dinners and looks nice and it's all... It's not really fitting the mood. Yeah, he kind of continues all the pomp and circumstance of the presidency and kind of keeps his personal style instead of pivoting to a more like austere yeah. lifestyle. So Martin Van Buren comes in pretty popular, but as it's coming time for Martin Van Buren to run for re-election, there's a lot of people who are not happy. And even people who are Jacksonian sort of Democrats who supported Jackson, supported Martin Van Buren in his first term, there's a lot of people in the second term who are going, is this the best direction for us? So we're entering into the election of 1840 with an unpopular incumbent and a lot of discontent but also not necessarily an organized opposition party. So really, at this point in the 1840s, we have the Whig Party. They're sort of the opposition. But the thing about the Whig Party is they're not super organized. They're basically like, we oppose Jackson and anything Jacksonian. But as far as a platform, we're kind of loosey-goosey on that. As far as like a coalition, it's sort of whoever we think can vote for us. And so there's a lot of different kinds of Whigs out there. And there's a lot of different factions within the Whig Party. On its surface, it's not very easy to see a clear path to opposing Martin Van Buren because there's a lot of different interests there. Uh, and in 1836, there had been three different Whigs that had challenged Martin Van Buren. And you can imagine how that went. They split the vote. Martin Van Buren sails pretty easily into the election. So when it comes time for 1840, obviously the Whig Party is looking at some of their big players, people like Henry Clay, who we've talked about uh, on the podcast, Daniel Webster. Uh, these are people who are really well respected in political circles, they're really well known in DC, but they're not broadly popular the way like Andrew Jackson was. They don't really have the sort of background that is gonna pull a coalition behind them. So the Whigs are sort of like, we need somebody. We need one person that everybody can unite around to force Martin Van Buren out. So this is like their chance to get serious. And so they have a convention in 1839 and they decide we're gonna choose William Henry Harrison. Do you want to tell us a little bit about William Henry Harrison? <laughs> oh, yeah, I really do. So William Henry Harrison is, uh, he's a war hero. He, we'll talk about that in a bit, but he had originally actually wanted to be a doctor. And then there's lack the financing from medical school. And so decides to go in the military because you make money in the military. Yeah, a guaranteed payday at least. 
Oh, yeah, totally. William Henry Harrison comes from the best families in Virginia. And this is going to be really important. And this is the point I'm going to mention again. His father signs the Declaration of Independence and was governor of Virginia. He's related. Like, I knew he was pretty well connected. But I, like, in the research for this pod, went down a rabbit hole. Turns out William Henry Harrison's related to literally everybody. There's, like, six families in Virginia of leading gentry families. And he's related the to, like, FFV, four of them. The the first families of Virginia. Very, very important. Yes, the first families of Virginia. Uh, he's related to Thomas Jefferson through Jefferson's mother. He's related to the Lees, which Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee also signed the Declaration of Independence. Their nephew, Lighthorse Harry Lee, he's a friend of General George Washington. You may have heard of him. And Lighthorse Harry Lee's son, Robert E. Lee, isn't famous yet, but it's going to be. And anyway, they're all cousins with William Henry Harrison. He's related to everybody. In fact, Robert E. Lee is related to William Henry Harrison twice <laughs> on his mother's side and his father's side. Because they all married each other. They all married each other. He's super patrician and super, like, well off. He is a slave-owning aristocrat. But as a child, he born in Virginia, but as a child, he's going to move to Ohio, which is considered the frontier back then. So he sort of gets this common, relatable, like every man kind of vibe. And that's what's going to propel him to the nomination that he can be uh, an every man. That's William Henry Harrison. And in fact, he's so associated with his time in Ohio rather than Virginia that they are actually going to select John Tyler, who's a Southerner, to balance out the ticket because Henry, William Henry Harrison is considered a Northerner. So that's William Henry Harrison to start with. And he has, in addition to that, he sort of has a little bit of this Western frontier cred that Jackson definitely was able to use to his advantage. Martin Van Buren didn't have that. So William Henry Harrison, having spent some time as governor of the Indiana Territory and having spent time on what was the border of the United States, he's got this frontiersman vibe that he leans into very heavy. You know, I've been out on the rough lands. I've had to face Native Americans. I've had to really carve myself out of the wilderness, even though, again, he comes from money and wealth and he was able to buy up lots of land and not exactly have to, you know, go out there with nothing but his bootstraps. But he really leans into that. And that's going to be something that's going to be hard for Martin Van Buren to counter against. I will also just mention... This is my little tiny connection to William Henry Harrison. I attended a school called Randolph-Macon Women's College, which is now Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, we were a women's college. And our brother school, kind of our partner school, was Hampton-Sydney, which is the oldest all-male chartered school in Virginia, I think, today, continually operated. But that is where William Henry Harrison attended school. As a teen, he went to Hampton-Sydney College, which I spent several not quite sober <laughs> uh, visits to as a college student. So that's my, that's the, kind of the first time I remember knowing that William Henry Harrison had a Virginia connection was he went to Hampton, Sydney, like a lot of patrician Virginia families did. So this is what we have. We have William Henry Harrison, who is chosen to be the Whig candidate. And they sort of think he's the perfect connection of good family background, military hero from the frontier. He actually was the last, um, um, last, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler, but he had been born when we were still British colony. So he's older than Van Buren. He kind of goes back to this other generation. So he's sort of seen as the Whig's answer to an Andrew Jackson-esque candidate. 
One thing, though, is he is older. He's older than Van Buren. In fact, at the time, he's in his 60s, which was considered quite old to be running for president of the United States. And he's going to be running against Martin Van Buren, the incumbent. He's backed by Jackson. Uh, Van Buren does have Jackson's support, who's still very much the party leader. But there's this question of who is going to be Martin Van Buren's running mate. Uh, Martin Van Buren had a vice president in his first term named Richard Johnson, but nobody liked Richard Johnson. Uh, he was not popular with the party. He was not popular with Martin Van Buren. And there was so much dissent within the Democratic Party that ultimately they just did not have a vice presidential candidate. That is the only time since the 12th Amendment that a major party has failed to put a vice presidential candidate on the ticket. Can you imagine, like, I hate to bring this to 2020, but can you imagine the uproar today if, like, a presidential candidate just decided not to have a running mate? It'd be insane. That's crazy to me. Anyway, so he just doesn't have a vice president. It's fine. It'll all work out. And so often, like the case with using Tyler on the ticket with with Harrison, it's often so used to balance or to pick up votes or something. But this maybe is going to be one of several missteps Martin Van Buren and the Democratic Party make is they just can't agree. So they leave that spot empty. So there's nobody to counterbalance Van Buren on his ticket. And that might be a problem. So as we get to this election, you can sort of imagine the way it breaks down. Harrison is obviously going to run uh, kind of on this platform of Martin Van Buren as a snob, as an elite, as somebody who has fiddled while the nation has burned economically. And he is going to portray himself as a war hero and a simple man of the frontier, which is not really what he is, but that's sort of the persona he's going to keep pushing forward. I think one of the things that I think about this election is that William Henry Harrison's incredibly savvy. He, or either him or the people who are around him, he is going to follow the Jackson mold as far as like, I'm a military hero. So he like adopts that sort of populist military stance and he's going to turn himself into like a man of the people, which he's not at all. And some not at all. somehow he makes Martin Van Buren into like this rich swell. Like Martin Van Buren's parents were immigrants. In fact, this is a little trivia fact. Martin Van Buren is the only president of the United States for whom English was not the language he spoke growing up in the home. His parents were Dutch immigrants. His first language was Dutch. His father owned like a bar. They were comfortable, but no the idea that like that Harrison very skillfully flips the tables on this is really kind of genius to me. And the other thing that I think Harris, uh, Harrison taps into is there's something that we call to, we have today, which is the, the idea that we want to have a beer with the president of the United States. We talked about this a lot in the election in 2000. This was a big part of like Reagan's appeal. Like we want a, the president to be a normal guy. And we think of this because we're sort of presentist. We think of this as like a present moment. But the truth is this has been a strain in American public life since the beginning. This is part of Jackson's appeal. This is part of Harris. What Harrison is going to very skillfully tap into. We want to hang out with our president. There are people who want the president to be like an average Joe. And Harrison just takes that and runs with it. And really, he centers his campaign more around personality than politics. Because as mentioned, the Whig Party in the late 1830s doesn't have a strong unified platform. They gain much of their political power in state elections and congressional elections by sort of just veering clear of controversial issues. So they are very 
cagey when it comes to talking about slavery and its, its expansion across the United States. The role of the National Bank, tariffs, taxes. These are all things that different Whig politicians have different opinions on. And as a party, the candidates sort of have their own leeway. And so <laughs> William Henry Harrison very wisely avoids the most controversial issues when you think about America in 1840. He's not out there talking about whether or not he thinks new states should be freed or slaves. He's not talking about what should happen with the National Bank. He's not even really talking about what he's going to do about the financial crisis, because that would mean he'd have to commit to a policy position. So it's, for me, the role reversal of his image is fascinating, but it's also something that, again, I think we tend to associate more with 20th century politics, which is style over substance. Super a lot. He basically just says, hey, I'm really cool and I fought in a war, so you should make me president. And Yeah, and because we're still in such these early stages of the party, you know, you could be a Whig who was anti-slavery and, you know, pro-tariffs and think that William Henry Harrison was your guy. You could also be a slave-owning aristocrat who wants to see the National Bank abolished and think Harrison's your guy. So it kind of works. It seems like it shouldn't because how do you build a coalition that way? But it kind of does work because he's just not making any promises to anybody. Right. Which is, you know, great if you could get away with it, which he does. <laughs> I don't know how, but he does. <laughs> and they campaign. We've talked about this in previous episodes in terms of like the idea of campaigning is still really, really new in the 1800s. And it was kind of seen as unseemly for like the candidates to be out there campaigning. You were supposed to kind of sit back and let your appointed people represent you. But Harrison's campaign is really out there. They mass produce goods like cups and plates and flags and sewing kits. Um, they hand out booze at their events, which of course make them very popular. They write songs, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And they come up with catchy slogans like they call Van Buren, Van Ruin. <laughs> So whenever they give speeches, that's what they refer to him as. And they make, you know, banners that talk about getting rid of Van Ruin. So it's politicking in a way that feel would feel very familiar to us today. And it's been in existence for almost 200 years. Yeah, I love that about this election is that there's so there's a through line for so many things that like kind of originate here. Um, they, yeah, Van Ruin, that's not actually as good a slogan as I think of it. That's not a true rhyme. <laughs> Van Buren and Van Ruin. This would be the kind of thing, if I heard it in a song, it would hurt yeah. my ear because it sounds like it rhymes, but it doesn't. But, you know, in terms of politicking, it's pretty good. Pretty good. It lays out what, why you think Van Buren doesn't deserve to have a second term. He's led us to financial improvement. The idea that the <laughs> Becca's literally clapping her hands at this next bit, you guys. This is happening. Um, the idea of his military victory. Harrison was a military hero. That's real. Uh, he has this big victory in 1811 uh, over the Shawnee Native American tribe at something called the Tippy Canoe River. And so his nickname becomes Tippy Canoe because he won at Tippy Canoe. And so <laughs> he picks John Tyler. And it's sort of someone, some genius, some forgotten genius somewhere comes up with the slogan, which is Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. So you're getting the star, the military hero, and you're also getting John Tyler. So it's really great and it rhymes and it's wonderful. 
I'm not going to sing it, but here's just a little snippet of this slogan that became a song that was used everywhere. What's the cause of this commotion, motion, motion, our country through? It is the ball of rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler too. For Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And with them will beat little Van, Van, Van. Van is a used up man. And with them will beat little Van. <laughs> So that's just the first verse in the chorus. The original version allegedly had 12 verses to it, which is crazy. You can go on YouTube and we'll put some of this in the show notes. You can find versions of the song that has been like been recorded and preserved. The band They Might Be Giants had a version, which in the early 2000s is where I had first heard it. And yeah, they actually got out balls and stuff and they would to roll Van Buren out. So it really was spectacle in a campaign that was still pretty novel at this time to have these sorts of things, to have these songs, to have these slogans, to have these literal kind of events where you've got the ball rolling. This is a new era in campaigning. And then Van Buren plays directly into their hands. Yeah, because their basic, like the Democrats and Martin Van Buren's basic shot back is that Harrison is too old. He's 68 at the time of this election, which at the time, would make him the oldest man running for president. They call him Granny Harrison, which is not particularly clever, but still makes me chuckle. They say that he's senile and out of touch. And then they say this. They say that he should just take his hard cider and his pension and sit out the rest of his days at his log cabin. And William Henry Harrison is like, that's great. I will become the log cabin president. That's exactly what he does. He is going to take this... And he becomes a log cabin candidate. He has a log cabin. He brings hard cider and like will dip ladles out to people at his rallies. Like he literally like owns this entire image. And he's like, yeah, I'm a log cabin president. I'm of the people. And look at these DC elite who are calling me too old to lead you. He just basically like turns it on his head. And it's so... This is like the first election with mass-produced campaign marketing. He's going to sell little hatchets filled with hard cider um, and like little mini log cabins. They're going to have sewing kits and cups and plates. And they hand out booze all over the place, which, as you can imagine, is going to make them pretty popular as far as the campaign rallies. So it's going to be this really interesting notion of, hey, look at our rallies. They're for the people. They're for you. As opposed to these D.C. people, these D.C. elite, Martin Van Buren, who's trying to ruin you economically. And it just plugs in and works. And it just shows, I think, how savvy Harrison is. And we don't have any, for reasons we'll get into, we don't have a lot of like examples of Harrison's sort of political savvy for reasons coming up, but I feel like he was a pretty savvy politician and that kind of gets lost in the sort of fun about his election. Yeah. And for me, this election is up to this point in Martin Van Buren's political life, I would have called him exceptionally savvy. He navigates the Jacksonian cabinet and all the ups and downs and scandal there skillfully. Prior to that, he was always very careful about where he positioned himself as new political parties were being developed. But he gets to this re-election, and I think this happens in general. When presidents have been in the White House for four years, you get a little disconnected it just is part of the process from the people, from what's happening. You're insulated. And Martin Van Buren sees what's happening 
1840. He sees the way Harrison is campaigning, but he just sort of tells himself, I need to just do this the way we've always done it. So he doesn't go out to do rallies. He doesn't go out and do things. He has his appointed people go and make some speeches. And he will, this is his idea of campaigning, is he will ask citizens to send him questions and he will write responses that are printed in a couple of big city newspapers. And it's so he can give long lengthy answers about policy. So you've got one guy out here, you know, with his log cabin, handing out booze and singing songs. And then you have Martin Van Buren writing op-eds in the big city's elite papers. He's playing right into what Harrison wants. And it's such a miscalculation. You know, it just shows that while Van Buren's the younger candidate, he's a little out of step with where the political wind is blowing. Yeah. And it's so, and the other thing I think I think Martin Van Buren's widower status hurts him at this point. First of all, he doesn't have a vice presidential candidate to take some of the heat away from him. Well, and to go out and do events and and be the face. Right. He also doesn't have a first lady to help soften his image. And it seems pretty easy to manipulate. Oh, he's this DC insider who just literally has like smoke filled poker games all the time. Like he's got no like... There's no feminine presence. There's no one else to help take some of this heat away from him. I feel like that's playing into this as well. I think we should mention at this point, not only is William Henry Harrison married, but he and his wife, Anna, have 10 children. That's just how they did it back then, ladies. 10 children. No, thanks. Which is a lot, and we'll also explain things we will discuss later. So Martin Van Buren, sort of like, I guess, optimistically, thinks he's got a chance in this election until he gets to about the end of October of 1840, and he starts realizing that in D.C. and around the country, the popular opinion is that he's going to lose. People are starting to say, Harrison's got a lot of support. And this is going to be a really big election. 80% of the eligible voters, the electorate, is going to go out and vote. So there's huge voter turnout. It's a big election. And it is just a runaway. Martin Van Buren is going to do okay-ish in the popular vote. But he is going to get just swept away in the electoral college. Martin Van Buren will only receive 60 electoral votes. That is seven states. The biggest of which is Virginia. So Martin Van Buren actually takes Virginia, which is interesting considering William Henry Harrison's roots there. Um, Without Virginia, uh, Martin Van Buren would have had 20 electoral votes or 40. It was a big chunk. Martin Van Buren loses his home state of New York, which is embarrassing. It is not often that presidential incumbents lose their home state, so that's unusual. He also loses Tennessee, where Andrew Jackson had been out campaigning for him for months. So this just goes to show how, I think, poorly this whole campaign was going. William Henry Harrison receives 234 electoral votes, so 234 to 60. He sweeps the West He sweeps New England and East Coast, the industry corridor. And this is the first time someone in the United States will win the U.S. presidency with more than a million votes. So we're starting to see the voting population growing. And he does very, very well in this election. So William Henry Harrison, despite his age, despite being 68, really rides in like with an overwhelming mandate. So this is a pretty good position to be in. There's no questioning this election. The American people want William Henry Harrison. And if I were William Henry Harrison, I'd be feeling pretty good. 
in November of 1840. I'd have been feeling pretty good back then, too. And he had a lot of time to enjoy it because the inauguration, as we learned in the last episode, was not until March. Until March. Right. So March of 1841, he's going to be inaugurated. And he was, at that time and for the next 140 years the oldest president to be elected. Up until Ronald Reagan is sworn in 140 years later, William Henry Harrison is our oldest chief executive. And he wants to not be bothered by these charges that he's too old. But Granny Harrison clearly got to him. Sure, nobody likes being called that. No, (laughs) Um, particularly probably a man, I would imagine. And so he wants to like answer the charges in sort of a very visual way. Uh, what he's going to do is he's going to give prove that his age is not an issue by giving the longest inaugural address in American history. It is to this day the longest inaugural address, an hour and 45 minutes. And today, inaugurations are January, which is always cold and disgusting. Back then, the beginning of March can be okay, but not that year. Uh, March 4th was very cold and very rainy that day. And... Like an idiot, Harrison doesn't wear a coat. Again, he's trying to show his vigor and his youth. So he eschews a heavy coat. He eschews a lot of the accessory you would wear if it's 30, 40, you know, 30 degrees and raining. Because he doesn't listen to his mother, tells him to wear a coat outside. And let me just to really, we, we, we hit this in the last episode, but an hour and 45 minutes is so far out of the range of what inaugural addresses have been. That's over 8,000 words, which makes it almost twice as long as the next longest speech. So, you know, on average, people are giving inaugural addresses of 2,400 words, 2,500 words. Some of the longer ones are maybe 3,500 to 4,000. He's up there given like an almost two-hour diatribe. It is too long. For anyone, and as you mentioned in the last episode, without a microphone or an amplification system, what is even the point? Right. You could just write a letter. And he has to stand there, and the people are standing, the audience, can you imagine how much they must have been, like, shifting on their feet and bored? And how do you talk to people for an hour and 45 minutes and not notice that their, like, <laughs> eyes are glazing over? Anyway. So he gives, he gives his inaugural address. He gets sworn in. He starts his presidency. And there's a reason that if you've been listening to this, you're like, I don't really know that much about William Henry Harrison and his time in office because it's going to be very short. He is going to die 31 days later, so April 4th. Now, there's a lot of, I think, the common sort of talking point is he gives this long speech without his coat on and he catches his cold and dies. That is not exactly how it plays out (laughs) because he's in okay health for a couple of weeks the first couple weeks he seems fine there's no outward sign of illness until about week three so there is some debate about what role does the actual speech and the weather play in his ultimate demise and he's gonna go out on march 24th so two weeks later He's three, two and a half weeks later, he's going to go out for a walk in the rain and doesn't change out of his wet clothes when he got back. And then he's going to start to get sick. So it is unclear actually whether the inauguration killed him. My guess is that it weakened him 
and his other walk a couple days later is going to further weaken him. There's also, though, it's possible that he died of something completely unrelated to his walks outside without coats. The White House at that time, well, the White House hasn't moved, but at that time, the White House was near kind of a swamp and there were like bad waters and it's possible that he got some... Think about no no sewage system, no good draining, lots of bacteria floating around in the groundwater. And if you were drinking water from the river, which is what most people were doing, you could get very sick. So gastroenteritis and these GI bacterias were not uncommon with other presidents who have gotten ill in the 19th century or presidential children. Right. So it's possible that it was not at all pneumonia or the cold or whatever his age. It's possible that it was bad bacteria. It's also possible it was typhoid. We don't know because they were very cagey about his health. The White House is not going to be particularly transparent about the state of the health of the president. He, we don't know, for example, like he spends a good bit of time after March 24th kind of unconscious. So he's not really leading for the last like week and a half either there. But the White House is going to be kind of vague about the details about his health. Most of what we know today about what doctors did in that week and a half comes from their remembrances and letters and journals after the fact, not from press reports and not from any information that was distributed to the public. That said, you got to kind of feel for William Henry Harrison because medicine back then was a little different than it is today. They were like, oh, you don't feel well. Here's opium. Oh, there's something not wrong. Obviously, laxatives are the way to go. They they then try to do the cupping treatment where they put the glass cups on and they heat them up, the, which they also did to Washington. Um, there's conflicting reports on whether William Henry Harrison was bled. They said initially they didn't, but doctors said that there was some bleeding towards the end when they were not sure what else to do. So not only are you fighting off infections, bacteria, possibly pneumonia, but now you've got opium and laxatives and bleeding and all these other things happening. That's going to really weaken you, especially if you are pushing 70 years old. This is where his age does become the issue. Yes. It's a lot harder to bounce back. You don't have the immune system. You don't have the 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 strength that you might have had 20 years earlier. And I feel like, and this is where I'm going to drop a Garfield reference. I feel like in some ways, like Garfield, the cure is worse than the actual disease. And it's actually like them trying to cure him is what kills him. And the other thing I'm going to drop about Garfield here is like James Garfield, William Henry Harrison had the makings of being a decent sort of effective president. He seems to have been pretty savvy on the campaign trail. A lot of this stuff we talked about is going to be really savvy political moves on his part. So it would have been interesting to see what happened to him uh, had he had a chance to exercise his mandate and lead. Unfortunately, with only 31 days and he spends 10 of them unconscious, there's not a lot to go on, so we don't know what kind of a president he would have been. The other thing about William Henry Harrison that's interesting to me is that the Whigs want him to be president, and he's got this overwhelming mandate, and the Whigs end up getting none of the things that they wanted. John Tyler was very much an independent and is going to actively oppose a lot of Whig policies and kind of go his own route. John Tyler is an interesting dude. But the Whigs are basically going to be like, hey, we elected this guy, and then he died, and now we have nothing. And it's sad. Yeah. So a, a couple of things to drive home. William Henry Harrison is the first president to die in office. So this is the first time we have a president 
who dies in office, we have to initiate the line of succession. Tyler becomes the first vice president to ascend to the presidency through the death of a president. And yeah, he is not exactly what the Whigs were hoping for. He had been a Democrat. He had been basically a Jacksonian supporter up until the nullification crisis, which we touched on briefly in our Petticoat Affair episode. So he's a Whig, like in name only and only recently. I don't know what you call that. Would that be a wino wig in name only? I will go with wino? that. Yeah, we'll go with wino. <laughs> we'll go with that. Oh, a, a wig no. Wig. He was a wig no. Wig in name only. So he is not exactly what they thought they were getting. And it's it's also just a little unusual. Nobody up to this point really, it's in the Constitution, but like nobody had really thought what is it going to be like when a president dies and has to be replaced? Because even when you vote, and I think that's true at any point, you vote typically the top of the ticket. And that's the person who gets the most attention and, and look. It's not too surprising that Tyler isn't super popular among Harrison's cabinet and among many of the people in D.C. They call him his accidency because he's the accidental president. He's going to be the first president to see one of his vetoes overridden, which kind of shows his political power or lack thereof. He has uh, some difficulty uh, trying to get anything accomplished. And it's also worth pausing on this moment. Like today, like, God forbid the worst happens, the president dies. We know what happens. Like it's happened a bunch of times previous. But at this time, it's has never happened before. So they're wondering, do we hold a new election? Is it automatically the vice president? How does this exactly work? Do we pick a new vice president? How does this, in practical terms, how does this all happen? This is all totally brand new. And John Tyler doesn't really seem to be the right man for this job, but he has to step into the breach here. And I, I will, last thing I'll mention about Tyler, just because I think he's such a weirdo, like in American history that we don't talk about enough, but he sides with the Confederacy and he actually will serve in the Confederate House of Representatives, not for long because he dies shortly thereafter. But here's a guy who like, accidentally becomes president, can't really get anything done because he has no coalition behind him, has no power. Then just a few days before he leaves office, he annexes Texas, and then he joins the Confederacy. He's just a weird, it's a weird thing. And often when you see kind of lists of worst presidents, he's sort of dumped in there. And a lot of people just, I feel like, don't know Tyler. And I think we probably do a whole episode on Tyler. I also, do you want to hear my Tyler fun fact? I feel like you know this, but you might have forgotten. Tyler, up until like a month or so ago, had a living grandchild. That's right. He had, so I will say, William Henry Harrison had 10 kids. Tyler and his wives, because I think he had two, 15 kids. He fathered 15 children, which is why he had living grandchildren. And several of them like late in his life, like his second marriage is like while he's president and later and like he's having little kids while he's an older gentleman. And one of his children has a second spouse and has children later in his life. And apparently they're all very long lived and quite virile because he had a living grandson who was in his 80s and passed away like two or three months ago. Yeah. And everybody like freaked out. (laughs) Everybody was like, wait, what? So one last thing I will say about William Henry Harrison before we go to the curse, I think we'll talk about a curse, but before we do that, is William Henry Harrison did leave behind a lot of children and grandchildren, including his grandson, Benjamin Harrison, who would become president of the United States, making William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison the only grandfather-grandson combo duo 
to hold that office. So we've had two sets of father-sons, um, but this is our only grandfather-grandson duo. So it's sort of interesting to me, William Henry Harrison is so short-lived in the office, but he kind of has this legacy of his grandson, uh, who I don't think Benjamin Harrison is as well-remembered, although he's certainly, um, I think, very interesting, and he lives long enough to be president and, you know, have his term. And he had a really great, interesting wife, Carolyn Harrison, who I'd love to talk about in a podcast someday. But I think if we were to, other than dying so shortly after his inauguration, I think when we talk about William Henry Harrison, there is a curse. I'm so excited about this. A curse associated. I love the oh, did curse. You wanna, do you want to do it? You want me to do it? <gasps> can I please? Okay, this you is You can exciting. do it, yes, please. Okay, so the curse of Tecumseh. Um, Tecumseh ooh. is, I know, ooh. Um, Tecumseh is the Native American, the Shawnee chief that William Henry Harrison is going to defeat at Tippecanoe. And the story goes that before his defeat, or after his defeat, but before his death, Tecumseh is going to put a curse on him that the he is going to ascend to be the big chief and is going to die. And that subsequent big chiefs are going to die after him. And... The curse is this, and there's a lot of, like, right at first, Harrison kind of laughs at this, but he's not laughing after he dies 31 days into his presidency. And then Harrison is elected in 1840. And so the curse apparently is every 20 years. Harrison's elected in 1840, he dies. Elected in 1860 is Abraham Lincoln, he gets assassinated. Elected in 1880 is... James Garfield, he gets assassinated. Elected in 1900 is William McKinley, he gets assassinated. 1920 is Warren Harding, who we talked about, doesn't end great for Warren Harding. Uh, 1940 is Franklin Roosevelt. 1960 is John Kennedy. So like every 20 years we elect a president and they die in office. And so leading up to 1980 with President Reagan, there's a lot of anxiousness and indeed if you go back to one of our very early episodes, Reagan suffers an attempt on his life uh, in very early on in his presidency and survives. So does he break the curse of Tecumseh? I don't know. We'll see. But that's the idea of the but curse. But here, here we go, because this is how my brain works. So 1980, there's an assassination attempt on Reagan, and really his life is saved by the incredible work of, of the doctors at George Washington University Hospital. It was very much like even more so than was kind of played up in the press at the time, he was really, really very close to losing his life. 20 years later, 2000, that's George W. Bush. Rebecca, you and I are, we're contemporaries. I remember this day so vividly. That man threw a shoe right at George W. Bush's head. I mean, you got to go back to the video because if he hadn't moved and there was actually a grenade that was lobbed at George W. Bush in 2005, which thankfully didn't detonate, but it was, uh, the man was arrested. It was an attempt on George W. Bush's life. So if you really, if you are willing to accept that the Secret Service is better at their job now, or we have Secret Service to do this job, and George W. Bush had cat life reflexes that saved him from the shoe, if you believe in such a curse, the next time would be... 2020. So some people would say Reagan broke the curse. I'm I'm open enough and I want everyone listening to know I wish no ill will on anyone who's ever elected president of the United States. But it's worth noting that Joseph Biden will become the oldest elected president in American history. Well, this took a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> and again, if you're listening, I love my yes. country. I yes. respect everyone who holds the office mm. of president of the United States. But um, you know, curses are curses. Facts I know. Are facts you can't argue with the curses. Comes the guys. Like this is this is real. This is the real. 
He already sprained his ankle, right? so maybe that was it. Right. I agree. <laughs> so that's one. So William Henry Harrison, the curse of Tecumseh. I like when you call it curse of Tippecanoe because I cannot stop myself from wanting to say, and Tyler too. <laughs> so that's the 1840 election, which was fun. 1840 election. Truly, I hope the takeaway on this is elections are, are not that different today than they were 200 years ago. No. Um, and that's my, that's, ago. that's my like big thing with this election is it's just, it introduces so many elements that are going to keep cropping up again and again. And it's just, there's nothing really new under the sun. And I bring this up on tours all the time to be like, Hey, you know, we're just as mean today as we were back then. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, so thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. As always, we are so thankful for our listeners. If you're liking the podcast, make sure that you're subscribed. And if you have a chance to leave us a review, we love a five-star review. Your comments mean so much to us. You can always reach out to us on social media at Tour Guide Tell All on Instagram and Facebook at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter. You can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love your emails. If you send us a good one, we promise to share it on the podcast. Um, but you can also pitch the pod. Let us know what topics you want to hear from us. We're working on developing the spring schedule now. So um, if you have suggestions or eras that you're curious about or topics you want us to go more in depth on, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, a huge thank you to our patrons who do so much to support us. You guys have been amazing. You made 2020 like possible for us to get through. For as little as $3 a month, you can get special access to videos, advanced episodes. You get special discounts, special goodies. Uh, you can get signed books. And we're going to be unveiling, I think, something special soon for our patrons where you'll get a chance to uh, call in and ask us some questions. So become a patron, support us. That would be awesome. Um, but we love you all regardless. We have so many exciting things coming up in February and March. February is uh, Black History Month. So we're going to do a bunch of cool things. We're going to do some African-Americans at Arlington National Cemetery. We're going to talk about Barbara Jordan. We're going to talk about Hiram Rebels, who's the first African-American to serve in the Senate. And then March is Women's History Month. We're going to talk about Frances Perkins, who's the first woman to serve in cabinet. Uh, we're going to talk about Madeline Pollard, who you've not heard of, but is at the center of a very real and very interesting sex scandal uh we're gonna talk about florence kennedy who you also haven't heard of but she's really fascinating too and it's gonna be really great so if you have ideas or for april we're starting to think about april and it's gonna be really great um so let us know and thank you guys so very much for coming along this ride with us it's been a lot of fun thank you guys bye thanks bye I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time.